<laughs> we work so hard to get stronger, happier, more productive and successful. Don't forget the secret ingredient. Get grounded in play. Play grounding when it's time to get a life. everyone and welcome back to Playgrounding. I'm Kara Stewart-Fortier, the host here in the treehouse at the Brewery Artist Complex in LA. And today we're doing something a little different. We have some great episodes coming with responses to the can fitness really be fun question. But today we're going in a completely new direction and you're going to hear from Pratik Chogule. He's executive editor at the American Conservative. Last month, Pratik wrote an article that really captured my attention. It was entitled, Is American Childhood Creating an Authoritarian Society? Not only was it an incredibly compelling and well-researched article, it opened me up to new possibilities about where the conversation around play could even go. In this particular instance, in the direction of politics. Um, I've never had a political conversation on playgrounding but I'm a news junkie. I'm very opinionated. <laughs> I've worked as a volunteer for a lobbying organization that works on poverty issues here and abroad. Um, as a citizen lobbyist from a left-leaning organization, I got to know my Republican member of Congress very well. He took me to just outside the door of the House chamber um, one day so I could see that. He gave me books to read so we could have deeper conversations about economics. He even reversed his stance on an issue that I brought to his attention. And while our politics remain very different, and I live in a different district now, I will always value that relationship so deeply. And it took years to build that relationship, by the way. Um, but I still find that even with all of that in my background, I tiptoe away from political conversations quite often these days. So before I bring you this conversation with Pratik, I want to do a little bit of a longer intro to give you actually a little bit of an understanding about my way of talking about politics, um, sort of what I expect from a conversation like this, um, what I'm bringing to you as an audience, because things are so volatile out there right now, and I want to give you a little understanding of where I'm coming from. Um, my father, who's now retired... He was an evangelical minister, and he always taught that politics didn't belong in church. And I remember walking with him as he took a stack of Christian voter guides that were left on our church doorstep. Um, he took them back to the dumpster, and I went with him. And it was, an, it was an incredibly powerful teaching moment for me. I've never forgotten it. And it's not just about religion. It was about what it means to be a citizen in a country with a separation between church and state, and it's something that I was always taught to value deeply. But since that time when I was a child, um, and especially since the dawn of social media, it's become very obvious that politics and church have mixed quite a lot. And the reason I'm bringing all of that up is that that's kind of the cultural stew that I lived in for most of my life. Um, and that's why I have tiptoed away from political conversations so much. I don't believe that social media caused a culture of intolerance. I think that social media exposed it and that on these platforms, dark thoughts are affirmed and ushered into the light of day. And the worst part of it is that no one engages with one another in the arena of ideas at all. 
The conversations can be reductionist and mean, and it's extremely rare to find someone who actually wants to build bridges of consensus. It's more about winning and vanquishing, which is really unfortunate as far as I'm concerned. So why is this relevant here on Playgrounding? Well, after last year's election, I started getting nervous. I have a Twitter list of over 50 amazing play advocates and enthusiasts, and most of the U.S.-based play accounts stayed silent on politics, like completely, while many of my European friends were openly discussing it, including some very strong opinions. And as a former citizen lobbyist who believes strongly in being a part of a solution and and being part of the national dialogue, I, I struggled with how to respond. I mean, the stakes seemed to get higher and higher, but I didn't want to get pigeonholed and thrown into one camp or another. I, I, I think the best way to describe it is that I'm personally plagued by nuance. I see it everywhere, and it makes it hard to jump into a conversation. And my, ex- my experience with the church also taught me that happy, smiling, and, and seemingly loving crowds of people can have under the surface very deep and terrible divides. And I think that that is what Americans are facing up to now more than ever. So last year, I did an episode in response to a conversation that was begun by an amazing group of play advocates in Denmark um, and a lot of their friends up in Europe or on the UK called Counterplay. That's the name of the organization. They asked the question, can play save us? We actually were on a, a webinar or conference call kind of thing together, kind of discussing this. It was amazing. Um, we were feeling a little lost. We were asking ourselves, is it still relevant to talk about play when so many shocking things are happening around the world? So in, in answer to the question, can play save us? There were a lot of great discussions and, and I tried to submit mine and a lot of great responses, but I never touched the subject of politics again until today. And, and in fact, I didn't actually really address politics. I talked more about mental health and some of those kinds of things. But today we go full political, <laughs> sort of, not really the way that you might think. Pratik's article is exactly the kind of exploration that I personally, with that background, am desperate to dive deeper into. And with the divides in the U.S. being as deep as they are, I feel the need to say this to you, that for me, this is not a partisan conversation in any way. Um, While Pratik has a very distinct point of view, um, this conversation is about grappling with the wider implications of what happens when a generation of children is deprived of free play. And one of the implications we discuss is how difficult it is to engage in real dialogue with someone who disagrees with you. So... If, as you're listening to this episode, you hear something you disagree with, and maybe you feel triggered in some way, I want to challenge you right now just to sit with it and hear us out in the end. And if you feel strongly, if you feel very strongly, please write me with your counterpoint, write me your constructive criticism, Um, just write me at kara at playgrounding.com. I welcome I welcome dissenting views. Um, It's just a part of who I am. Um, And I would love to do a show on your ideas on this topic as well and the conclusions that you draw. Um, But as you'll learn in this episode, I love dialogue. I love love counterpoint. It's part of my DNA, so bring it on. But now, after that long-winded intro, here is my conversation with Pratik. Pratik. 
Well, welcome, Pratik. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. This is a huge surprise. We've actually not had anyone talk about play and politics yet. So this is really, really exciting for me to get into a completely new area. Can you tell me just a little bit about you and about uh, your interest in this subject? Yeah, well, I'm the executive editor at the American Conservative. Mm -hmm. uh, most of my career has been in politics and policy. Um, I've always been interested in authoritarian societies and what goes into creating them, how they can be uh, defeated. And um, so I really came at it more from that angle than any particular interest in parenting or childhood. <laughs> um, there were a few different things that led me to the topic. Uh, mm -hmm. One was Recently, I wrote an article on high IQ children, and mm -hmm. I uh, people who have written in this space have sort of concluded that we need more parenting or strict uh, forms of control over children. My own sort of conclusion from that research was actually the opposite, mm -hmm. that um, really what sort of talented, gifted children need is uh, more autonomy, more free play. They're already curious. They're already motivated. Mm -hmm. um, I guess more recently, I had a discussion with a friend of mine, Lenore Skenazy, who runs um, the free, uh, she's into sort of free range, uh, free range kids. Yes. Um, and we were talking and it occurred to me that um, there are really political implications here beyond the child development considerations. And as I dug more and more into the research, I found this whole fascinating literature uh, showing that the roots of authoritarian societies really uh, can be found in childhood and the way uh, children are sort of not only parented but nurtured and taught about independence and freedom. Yeah, and I would um, I would like to sort of ask you a little bit about the Alice Miller uh, uh, reading that you had found on that, sort of to open it up. Because I mean, I, I love how you concluded, uh, you just kind of said, I'm not saying that I'm claiming that there's no recess and now there's going to be authoritarian government. But how you came to this, I'd love to start with um, sort of some of the research that Alice Miller did just to get us going. Sure. So Alice Miller was a psychologist who became quite popular in the 70s, but she was really a student of authoritarian societies. Uh, she was Jewish herself and had uh, family sort of involved in the, with the Holocaust and other Nazi enormities. Mm -hmm. And um, in the course of trying to understand and figure out what, how did, how do these authoritarian regimes come about, um, she really discovered that sort of you could, you could see the origins of not only the Nazis, but also other authoritarian regimes, whether it was uh, Soviet communists or even uh, uh, later on in Iraq with Saddam Hussein, that almost without exception, uh, the dictators who, who end up becoming, committing horrible acts of murder and genocide and whatever else were almost invariably uh, abused in childhood. Mm. But then this sort of led her to believe not only that it was the, the dictators themselves who were sort of mistreated as children and were therefore lashing out, but it was really a whole generation of people within a, a society um, who sort of, as a result of not having independence and freedom and so forth in childhood, end up embracing authoritarian ideologies later on. And um, when I first came across this sort of theory from Alice Miller and others, mm -hmm. I thought it was a little bit reductionist. I mean, the kind of things that 
Uh, she talks about things like corporal punishment and, uh, and whatnot may be objectionable, but unfortunately they're, they're a part of the way children have been raised for a long time. Mm-hmm. But what made me sort of take another look at these theories was um, in, the, in the Republican primaries uh, this time around, the number one predictor of whether or not people were voting for Donald Trump or not actually really had nothing to do with income, with where they were living, et cetera, et cetera. It had to do with their attitudes on child rearing and specifically yeah. uh, the more uh, of what's called an authoritarian mindset that they had, mm-hmm. the more inclined they were toward Donald Trump. And uh, so that that I found to be fascinating and quite revealing. It made me take another look at this issue. Wow. Wow. And the, and the, the evidence that you stacked up in this article, there were just so many things. I was, it was funny. I was preparing. I wanted like tweet like every line of this article, <laughs> um, and I'd like to sort of go through a couple of them and ask them, ask you about them. Um, the first is this. You said Peter Gray said that parents who believe in the value of a free, unsupervised childhood. Um, he likens them to the past norms of Chinese foot binding. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, Peter Gray is a psychologist at Boston College, and I believe he came to the issue actually out of personal interest with his own son, who appears to be quite uh, intelligent and bright, but just was not a good fit in the public school system. And he's now an advocate of homeschooling and unschooling and Mm. whatever else. Um, But Peter Gray was one of many scholars who I came across who really showed that um, it was quite bizarre to me, actually, but really since the early 80s, um, there's been this remarkable paradigm shift in parenting and the way children are raised, where uh, not only are is virtually every form of independence and autonomy that might have been taken for granted uh, has really come under pressure. And you've really seen fundamental norms change uh, among parents, among teachers, among politicians, where um, th- Parents who now believe in giving children sort of autonomy to play without structure or, or adult supervision, uh, it's no longer just that there might be a different philosophy here, but they're actively shamed. And I think the point Peter Gray was making, um, maybe somewhat jokingly, was that uh, sort of these these things that we can take for granted uh, need to be questioned, not unlike sort of norms on uh, foot binding in China, which persisted for for thousands of years, and you know it was only relatively recently that Chinese society sort of came to see the absurdity of this. And I think Peter Gray uh, likens sort of our attitudes about childhood independence to irrationalities of that sort. Wow, that is fascinating. I know we've talked quite a bit on this podcast about the strange thing for those of us who did grow up in the '80s, and I don't personally have children, and it's just confounding to me to realize that children don't experience childhood the way that some of us did um, when we were younger. So this is all there there are a lot of things going into this now too within schools. It's not just parents who are trying to really overprotect, but also a change within the philosophy of education in the recent years. Um, You want to speak to that at all? Sure. Well, well, just to your first point about play, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I this was actually one of the things that got me interested in the first place. I, I remember I, I always worked pretty hard in school. I, I mean, I certainly wouldn't have characterized my my own childhood as being particularly free or unstructured. <laughs> but I remember I did uh, growing up. I It was just part of our day-to-day routine to go outside and 
play in the neighborhood yeah. or ride bike alone for a few hours. And uh, actually, Lenore uh, Skenazy was telling me that um, this is sort of a real aberration, that, that the vast majority of children now do not play outside in neighborhoods and whatnot mm -hmm. in any meaningful way. I, I found that to be quite astonishing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but on the education point specifically, there has been a real t trend toward um, if you look in kindergartens, for example, where one would think that there there would not be too much uh, or, or people would intuitively recognize the value and importance of play. Mm -hmm. There's been a real I would call it a crackdown where you're where you're seeing um, uh, instruction oriented around state standards and testing and metrics. And you have teachers sort of uh, with these very rigid curricula mm -hmm. and set guidance that they can't really stray from. You're also just seeing um, children spending more and more time in school. Um, yeah. And it's not like these are sort of holistic schools where there are um, a lot of uh, that people are out, their kids are out in nature and, or they have a lot of time to do their own thing. These are very structured, um, uh, supervised, I, I would say authoritarian uh, forms of control. And, and it seems to me that the trend is moving in that direction across the board in education. I, I believe President Obama sort of came out in favor of um, restricting uh, the, the amount of summer vacation kids have and so forth. And I, and I understand what the impetus is behind it, but there is a real cost. Mm -hmm. And I think one of them is behavioral problems that, that can emerge when kids uh, just don't have enough free time for, for, for uh, free play and whatnot. Yeah, and some of those consequences that you are listing, increasing rates of anger, aggression, and severe behavior problems, um, even health. I mean, this is some very, it's not just, you know, making connections to these big ideas, but this is very down to earth, like, problems with health that are the biggest health problems plaguing kids today um, directly linked to these kinds of things yeah and something like health is a very real thing that we all are just aware of and intuit but I think they they really have political consequences mm -hmm. I one of the things I've been trying to understand over the past year or so is why have we seen this uh, really profound growth in the size of government and why does it seem to be uh, just increasing irrespective of who's in power, et cetera. And, uh, and why is it happening in a country that sort of has this identity around limited government and so forth? And, um, and I actually don't think it's really a matter of high philosophy. I mean, as much as people in my world like mm -hmm. to think of it that way, the, the fact of the matter is when you have a whole uh, population that, that's overweight, that's suffering from chronic diseases, who have children with more and more special needs, uh, it's not surprising that a greater and greater percentage of our population, whatever their political ideology is, simply are, are not equipped to live in a free society without um, a lot of government care and oversight and whatnot. And so I, I do think that these are uh, issues that are tragic and profound in themselves, but also have political consequences. Absolutely. And I mean, even you described toys you know, toys today are not the types of toys that encourage free play. Even the toys you give them to go occupy themselves with lend, lend themselves to structure. <laughs> and yeah, no, it was very bizarre when I came across that. I, um, I mean, the, the study you're, you're referring to is uh, that, that parents since the early 80s have been buying less uh, sort of multi purpose toys, I guess they're called things like clay or blocks or whatever that 
sort of allow kids to experiment and show creativity and whatnot in favor of things like action figures. And, and frankly, I think action figures are um, actually the least of our problems. <laughs> I mean, I'm always astonished when I go out and go to restaurants and whatever, and you have these parents giving their kids, uh, I don't even know what they are. They're like TV screens <laughs> or uh, oh, yeah. whatever, but, but like almost being sedated rather than um, simulated. And again, it, it's just not surprising that this kind of behavior in the aggregate would fundamentally change our political structures and our political orientations. Mm -hmm. And you make a, a connection here now to a millennial, and I, I used to write white papers. One of the most intriguing things they wanted to write about was generations. They wanted to split us all up into these little pieces. And I know there are some people who have a big problem with this. I've I've studied them and I have a lot of friends who are complained about some of the things that I had been writing. Um, but I think it's kind of important. And I, I, I'm saying this for the sake of my millennial friends out there who hate to be categorized and hate to be talked about. And I say this as a Gen Xer and I didn't really think about it that much. But you can't deny changes in education policy. You can't deny the, the rates of time that children don't get to have free play. So whatever you want to call it generationally, we are all human. But at the same time, we grew up in vastly different economic situations, um, vastly different you know, educational systems from one another. So there are going to be differences. And I'm not trying to alienate any generation from the other. But I do want to dig into this regarding um, what's happening on college campuses. And you're tying a lot of this in and saying this is something that's happening more now. Um, of people saying that X person should not have a voice in this arena. You know, can you kind of talk to that a little bit? Sure. Well, to some extent, I share the skepticism about uh, generational <laughs> demarcations. I mean, not because I, I think there's anything wrong with the exercise, but I think in a society that is becoming more segregated Absolutely. along lines of class mm -hmm. and whatever, not... I mean, I'm, I'm just skeptical that we can draw blanket conclusions about Americans. The astonishing thing, though, about this um, authoritarian structure issue is that it does seem, in fact, to be a largely universal generational trend that's happened in American societies. And millennials, in particular, have been on the receiving end um, of ever greater forms of adult control and whatnot. Um, so, I mean, on this college academia point specifically, I followed this debate for a long time being a a political conservative sort of criticisms about academia and free speech and so forth have almost become a, a cliche or a trope of sorts on the right. Um, my own experience in college actually was, I was reasonably politically active, but I, I didn't really encounter a lot of this authoritarian stuff. I mean, there were certainly political, politically correct excesses and whatnot, but none that are, that I found to be particularly out of the ordinary when you're dealing with teenagers who are just finding their voice and, mm -hmm. and whatnot. Um, a friend of mine from, from college, actually, uh, his name is Rob Montz. He's been, he, he produced a two-part documentary, one looking at uh, Brown and free speech issues there, and then one at Yale. And um, we, we had lunch recently, and I, I hadn't seen these documentaries, really. And I asked Rob, like, of all issues in our society, why focus on these elite colleges, which for all their flaws, really, I think represent what's 
good about our country and what's really working. And then I and then I challenged him too. I said, I mean, Rob, we were at college at the same time. Things really weren't that bad. And he said, No, they've gotten worse. And I I and I so I watched these documentaries. And really, over the last like five years or so, there's actually been a a really remarkable paradigm shift in terms of um, just just really fundamental basic limitations and restrictions on free speech. And um, and I mean, the question is why, and I think it's a complicated issue, but it, it doesn't seem to be, uh, to me, to be a stretch that if you have this whole generation of kids who grew up from the time they were born up till age 18 without any real autonomy or independence or, or whatnot, and all of a sudden they're sort of thrown on these college campuses where for the first time they're totally on their own, um, it, it's not terribly surprising that they might hear an idea that they don't like or they might have face a challenge to their fundamental values and whatnot and, and react in a way that's not uh, necessarily sort of the way we might want dialogue to happen in a, a democratic society. Yeah. And I mean, I was alarmed. I saw a video of a college professor. I think it was University of Toronto. I can't remember his name, but he had a speaking engagement and people showed up with with speakers and amplifiers that they just turned to static so that nothing could be heard and no dialogue could happen at all. And I thought, if this is a university with, where the, the other voices would be welcome to come and have a conversation, why the need for the static, you know, and I, I'm going to get myself into trouble here, but, you know, we don't usually talk about politics too much on here, but this is very disturbing to me that in the face of a, an idea that is not like or are not agreed with by one side that they would just simply silence it. And what I don't understand is how they can do that without the chill going down their spines of this is exactly how we end our democracy. This is exactly how we end this free society that we worked so hard to build. And and I never had thought about the fact that children who never experience that improvisation in life, that moment when you step out onto the playground and somebody does something, they initiate play, you initiate back. I mean, you go, you respond and and this this improvisation happens in those moments of free play that I'm becoming, I'm beginning to realize is so incredibly important um, for them being able to even handle having a discussion with someone about something they don't agree with. I mean, I never made that connection, but you did. And I'm really, it really blows me away. Yeah. I was really fascinated when I came across the work of a lot of evolutionary psychologists mm -hmm. and biologists who are trying to figure out, like, why did play evolve mm -hmm. in the first place? Why do kids sort of intuitively, in fact, I mean, as your work has pointed out, not only children, but, but really mm -hmm. at any age, um, you can see the, this remarkable instinct that we have for play and creativity mm -hmm. and whatnot. Um, and, and one of the theories is that sort of play is actually a very important part of the developmental process that ultimately sort of trains children, but I, I think people across the board to really cope with and master their phobias mm -hmm. and fears. Yeah. And, um, and, and so if you, if you sort of, this is speculation to, to some degree, but if you have kids being deprived of this whole sort of activity that they're wired to have that teaches them how to respond to something in their environment that may be foreign and scary, but, but ultimately is normal, it just, 
it seems like that might be related to people hearing uh, at an older age, hearing an idea uh, that at first glance seems to maybe attack their identity or their worldview or their mindset mm -hmm. and whatever. And, uh, and I don't think we can take for granted that, that people can learn these things and, and just intuitively get it without a lot of uh, social conditioning going well. Yeah, in, in childhood. And I, I, I would understand if, if, at this particular university, no one was allowed to speak on a certain subject and it was just being dictated across, you know, the student body that they weren't allowed to ever have this conversation. And a good, you know, responsible group of rebels would go do something like that if they had no other option to use their voice, but they do. And, and you know, dialogue and, and consensus is not built this way. It just builds the barriers even higher and I, and I, yeah, I just, it's so fascinating to think about how our social conditioning and the lack of play. And, you know, I mean, we've had talked, I'd love to have actually Stuart Brown. Um, he's done a lot of great work in the, in this area of studying people who don't get to play and he studied murderers, <laughs> but I won't go into all that, but it's, it's really, really interesting. Um, yeah, very, very big consequences. And also I know Rat, Pat Rumba when she was on recently, she's actually part of an organization or works with people who do, who bring free play to communities of children who would not ordinarily get to experience it. And I'm really fascinated. I really like to go get the training to be able to do that myself. But um, one of the pieces of it that she put out there is that, and, and I don't know this for sure, I need to get more people. But one of the things I think I remember her saying is that the kids are left to figure their own problems with each other out in these scenarios. They they put they put the boundaries in place. They put the boxes and toys and blocks and and you know toys that you can pretty much do anything with. The kind of toys you're, you've mentioned are that are disappearing from the lives of a lot of these children. Um, but one other aspect of it I absolutely love is that the kids are left alone unless they're literally killing each other to figure their own problems out with each other. And that's what used to happen on the playground. The teachers weren't in, involved in every conversation. Um, but I feel like that right there is so huge because <laughs> they would have to listen to each other or nothing, no play would even commence. Yeah, no, I mean, and what makes sort of this authoritarian specter mm -hmm. so alarming is the I mean, for, for a long time people on the left will sort of call people on the right fascists and people on the right will sort of turn around mm -hmm. and say yeah. communists in kind of a silly way but even in this sort of heat, heated rhetoric there's I think been for a long time in this country a certain um, consensus on what the rules of the game should be that sort of sort of certain ideas mm -hmm. ought to be debated and discussed in a particular way um, there's a certain way of engagement that's uh, acceptable and isn't and and those boundaries are always being negotiated but I think there is sort of a, a general democratic consensus what I found one of the reasons I decided to write the piece is I think that that very consensus about democratic exchange and norms uh, are breaking down in a very fundamental way and I I don't think it has anything to do with political mm -hmm. partisanship or, or ideology. Um, and you, you see it, I think, these authoritarian tendencies with the Trump phenomenon. Um, I, I found it sort of disturbing, for example, during the, some of the rallies Trump had in his campaign where you know, he would sort of uh, uh, 
kind of call authorities to sort of shoo away protesters and whatnot, yeah. and the crowd would cheer. But then you see in academia this sort of um, arena that, that ought to be fundamentally about yeah. the free exchange of ideas. There are people who are highly intelligent, highly professional, presumably the leaders in our society, behaving in this very authoritarian way. And it just, it leads me to the conclusion that it's really not about ideology or preferences. There is something much more fundamental, I think, going on at a developmental level uh, that that's causing the sort of authoritarian undercurrent to, to happen in our society. And, and I think if it reaches a certain threshold, that's where kind of our basic agreement on democratic rules of the game yeah. could challenge. That's exactly what's happening right now. And I and I also want to just, you know, to my my friends and dear listeners that I know I are from all different sides of the political spectrum. I that's why I tend to try not to get too involved in talking about this kind of stuff on my Twitter and that kind of things. I don't want people to distract from the the general message, but at the same time, I feel like this phenomenon is happening to everyone along the political spectrum that really highly values true debate and and real exchange of ideas this is not a partisan issue at all um as far as i'm concerned and you know if you want to take me to task write me a letter you know write tell me what you think but um yeah this is happening to all of those of us who really value those fundamental um values of democracy as far as i'm concerned um, what, what's ironic and interesting in a way is that this authoritarian stuff is happening at precisely the time where, in some ways, uh, speech is freer than ever. I mean, if you look <laughs> at the podcasting and mm -hmm. um, kind of connectivity and, and opportunity that ordinary people have to engage in the democratic process and whatnot, it, it's really extraordinary. I mean, I, I really welcome sort of challenges from the mm -hmm. alternative media and so forth. And... Um, and, and that makes it interesting because if we have, on the one hand, one group in, in our society who are really taking advantage of social media and podcasting and YouTubing and, and, and all these, this, this sort of renaissance of free speech, and then we have another segment of society that just at some gut fundamental level does not even believe in free speech, yeah. that, I think that sort of calls into question the sort of coherence of our uh, country and community and and just like the baseline that you need to be a kind of unified, viable uh, polity. Yes. This is something that I don't really understand how to reverse. I, I don't see how the tendency towards certain types of toys now with commercialism so strong in childhood. Um, and that's been going on since the 80s, but I think it's even worse now. Um, you know, schools removing, you know, you know be, being so much of the day. Um, so much of a sedentary lifestyle, looking at screens, it just feels like everything is against um, free play. It, it seems like it it's, would be nearly impossible to bring it back. But I know there are a lot of amazing people out there in the play community that are working on it. What, what do you think are some ways we can walk this back a little bit? Well, I, I think a lot of the, the reason why this paradigm shift is happening is actually it's sort of a... Um, it's a consequence, actually, of good intentions for the most part. I, I don't think that, I mean, I, I talk about the authoritarian personality in sort of an unflattering way, but I think a lot of the uh, practical consequences of, or, or the practical drivers of why this is happening actually are driven by, by good motivations. I mean, I, I think, um, for example, when 
TV coverage is always focusing on abducted children or crime or kidnapping or whatnot. It, it, it's not, I mean, who can fault sort of a, a parent for not wanting their kid to be unsupervised in a neighborhood where they may not know other neighbors, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I guess one of the arguments I would make is just to point out that a lot of the uh, entirely sort of uh, rational reasons why one might want to restrict uh, play and other forms of freedom over children are actually fundamentally irrational. I mean, if you look at the just the really hard data on how much of a threat, uh, like how rare it is for a child really to be abducted or kidnapped or um I mean, all these sort of fears that we have, uh, if, you, if you really look at the hard data, they, they just, they're really not that, that dangerous. I mean, there are a lot of other risks in our society that we tolerate as, as part of a, a free society that are just objectively yeah. much more dangerous. And on the other hand, the, the consequence of this helicopter parenting and so forth mm -hmm. actually are pretty serious. I mean, I think if you, if you get into a pattern where right from childhood you're living a sedentary life or um, you're you're in a sort of four-walled classroom without any autonomy um, I think I think there are pretty serious psychological mm -hmm. consequences to this I think maybe a, a good place to start would just be to really take another look at the the cost-benefit analysis here and really question whether um, restrictions on autonomy and freedom or whatever are actually delivering what we mm -hmm. presumably want them to do. Uh, I think they're not. Yeah. And you know, I, when I, the more I think back and I was a child of the eighties and I did have my time to run and play, but I also um, was a part of the evangelical world back when the political seeds of, you know, some of what's happening today were being sown. And I do remember very clearly once I got to college, and I even went to a Christian college, but I went to a state school for a meeting of some kind, I can't remember what it was, and ended up in a conversation with someone about evolution. And I had never really had my very specific kinds of religious ideas challenged before. And I remember that moment so clearly because I had this heat form on the back of my neck and I got really upset. And I, and I just was like, Ooh, I don't know if I can handle this conversation. I, I remember his face so clearly. And, but in that moment, I stopped because I had been on in debate when I was in high school. I had, I would, I had just taken my first philosophy class and ended up becoming a philosophy major later. Um, but I became addicted to this idea that nobody's words were literally going to hurt me. And that if I could build a little, if I saw words like Tinker Toys, and if I could just take my box of words and dump them out on the ground and build something beautiful and show somebody, well, what about this? And then not be afraid of any kind of huge repercussions if they had another more beautiful Tinker Toys. Is that making sense? I'm sorry if I'm going in a strange place. But I just, I feel like I was prepared through open free play. I feel like I was prepared through exposure to creative play in, in school as in theater and, you know, music. And I started to learn that the consequences of having someone disagree with you, it's not a thousand foot drop. It's not a place where, you know, but I learned that in school. I learned that from my play environment. I learned that from my parents um, who allowed me to ask all kinds of questions. Um, so yeah, I just I very much relate to the fear people feel. I'm 
not anywhere near that person anymore. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I, I remember how it felt to be afraid. And it kind of reminds me of those little rats in Stuart Brown's study that I've talked about on a couple other episodes where the little rats that were not allowed to play um, were, ex- and, th- and then there were also rats in the same study that were allowed to play grow- growing up. And then when they were exposed to a cat soaked, we can imagine what it was soaked with, collar, each group was exposed to cat smells. The group of rats who didn't know how to play just froze in place, or they did, they weren't able to come up with any creative solutions to escape this potential cat whereas the rats that were allowed to play um they had tools in their tool belt and i feel like because i was allowed to play because i you know i knew that ideas were not going to kill me in that moment um i could collect myself and i could have that conversation but i just i really think what you're doing this article and the work you've done is just so amazing and just want to thank you for writing it Oh, thank you. Well, a number of things sort of jumped out in what you what you just mm-hmm. said. The um, one of the the scholars who I quote in the article is a sociologist named uh, Frank Peretti. I, yeah, I think yeah. That's how you pronounce. It. Yeah, and um, he he's one of the people that have kind of opined on this issue of why um, we're we're seeing this sort of trend of authoritarianism. And his argument is that a lot of um, discomforts, I guess, that, that used to be taken for granted and, and seen as a normal part of childhood are now being viewed through the lens of psychology, almost as if they're a pathology. Mm-hmm. And I, I have to say, I, I had a mixed view on, on that, that perspective, because I do think there are a lot of things in childhood uh, that, that we take for granted that actually are not good. I mean, I, for example, um, something like bullying. I mean, it, it wasn't sort of something that I was particularly attuned to growing mm-hmm. up, but now that I read these sort of books and, and testimonies and whatnot of the kind of bullying that seems to be fairly yeah. common, um, I mean, whether or not it is sort of a, has been a normal part of childhood, I think it's abundantly clear that that's not acceptable. Yeah. But at the same time, the the sort of um, what you pointed out of being confronted with a worldview or an opinion or something that literally you can like feel the sensation in, in, in your mm-hmm. body. Um, I think we all can, can relate to that. And, and the point is, I mean, I certainly remember uh, uh, experiencing that in college where I was suddenly sort of in a very diverse environment that I had never really been in before and, and so forth. And um, just that process of going out of your, your comfort zone, I think just, pays such dividends uh, down the line. Wow. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything you'd like to add? Any hope you have for, you know, where, where we can go in the future, anything you'd like to, that you maybe didn't touch on that you'd like to say? No, I I guess I just want to thank you for having me on. And um, it's, I I was reluctant to write the article because so much of it is speculative and, and so forth. And, um, there's a part of me that thinks, well, maybe this is all sort of nonsense that's sort of contrived into <laughs> one article, but the fact that the article really resonated across the political spectrum yeah. suggests to me that on the one hand, maybe this is a real trend, but on the other hand, a lot of people are aware of it and, and are not ready to sort of throw in the towel here. And yeah, exactly. so I think conversations like this are, are hopefully helpful and, and useful and pointing us the right direction. Absolutely. And it definitely is something I think the play community has been saying for a long time. But it I feel like when people hear me say I have a podcast on play, they kind of think, oh, that's cute. You know, well, everybody loves play. Of course, we need more play in our lives. And you kind of go on with your day and don't do it. But 
I mean, even I, I mean, the reason why I started the podcast, because I wasn't actually taking my own advice, but I just think it's so important for the people who do advocate for play um, to, to be able to come in and make some of these connections like what you did and, and really linking it to these real world things. And I think we're trying, we're trying really hard. I just feel like that we can just get a little louder and yeah. I, I think there's just so much, I think a, a mountain is probably going to form of people's ideas about this um, in the near future. So thank you for writing this article and um, it's really, really lovely speaking with you. Yeah, Yo, you too. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the conversations we have here on Playgrounding, please help more people find this podcast by giving it a rating or a review on iTunes. Don't miss next week's episode as we return to our series, can fitness really be fun? Like, really? With Robin Legat. She's a personal trainer and host of the Seasoned Athlete Podcast, where all of the guests are accomplished athletes over the age of 40. Some of them didn't even get started in their sport until well into adulthood, which is pretty inspiring as far as I'm concerned. See you next week.